Hey, what's up? This is Madam Butterfly, and you are tuned into Frequency Bay. Um, I am back with the rest of the third installment of the third part of um, the Century of Self, and uh, so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish playing this documentary and we're going to listen to it. I'm going to give a little bit of commentary and um, yeah, I guess we'll go from there. Um, I think there's also a conversation that I want to pull up and that I want to talk about that I think kind of mirrors what's happening in this particular documentary. And that's why part of the reason why I want to pull it up and talk about it. Um, I think that it mirrors uh, this particular documentary and also, um, yeah, I, I guess uh, we'll just, um, when we pull it up, we'll talk about it some more. But I'm going to go ahead and get into the rest of this documentary so we can go ahead and get to it. But it was empty and meaningless that it was empty and meaningless. And in that, there's an enormous freedom. All the constrictions, all of the rules you've placed on yourself are gone. And what you're left with is nothing. And nothing is an extraordinarily powerful place to stand because it is only from nothing that you can create it. And from this nothing, people were able to invent a life and allowing them to create themselves. You can be what you want to be. I want you to start to make that sound, and on that sound, create and people the world the way you want to create it. What Earhart did was to say that only the individual matters, that there is no societal concern, that you living a fulfilled life is all you need be concerned about. Asked people came out of those trainings feeling that it wasn't selfish to think about yourself. It was your highest duty. Go kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Hold me like you never let me go. The training is, uh, is two weekends. And uh, it was quite an incredible experience in my life. I'll forever be grateful for the experience. I got a great deal out of it. We really want to know who we are. There are things going on. We learn more and more about us, ourselves all the time. And to really find out what it, make, what it is that makes us tick and how we are discovering ourselves. Best became hugely successful. Singers, film stars, and hundreds of thousands of ordinary Americans underwent the training in the 1970s. But in the process, the political idea that had begun the movement for personal transformation began to disappear. The original vision had been that through discovering and expressing the self, a new culture would be born, one that would challenge the power of the state. We will not let them separate our culture from our politics. We are a people. We are all together. What was now emerging was the idea that people could be happy simply within themselves. 
and that changing society was irrelevant. One of the proponents of this was Jerry Rubin. In 1968, Rubin, as leader of the Yippies, had led the march on Chicago, but now he had undergone S-training. I was willing to die, and I, and I had a martyr complex in a sense, I think we all did, and I've given up that ideal of sacrifice. Um, and I, I'm not as, um, I'm not as overwhelmingly moved by injustice as I was. And now we reincarnated ourselves from within. Basically the politics were lost and, 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 and totally replaced by this lifestyle. And, and then the desire to become deeper and deeper into the self. By now a grandiose sense of the self. And my uh, a good friend uh, and uh, one of the original Yippie founders, Jerry Rubin, definitely moved in that direction. And, and I think he was buying into, beginning to buy into the notion that he could be happy and fully self-developed on his own. Socialism in one person. Looking alone in that. Although that, of course, is capitalism. <laughs> that's, that's the whole joke. I think it's funny. <laughs> I think it's funny because people spend so much of their life being bedeviled by their past and being locked into their past and being uh, limited by their past. And there's an enormous freedom from that, letting people create themselves. Est was only the most vivid and intense expression of an idea that was spreading rapidly through all strata of American society. Books and television programs promoted the idea that one's first duty was to be oneself. And those monitoring this shift were astonished at the speed with which the idea was spreading. In 1970, it was a small percentage of the total population, maybe 3 to 5%. By 1980, it had spread to the vast majority of the public up to 80%. You ask the question, how do you get self-actualized? You take this day and you say, when I shave every morning, I look in that mirror, I say to myself, I really say this, I say, nobody is going to ruin this day for you, Wayne Dyer, nobody. That this preoccupation with the self and the inner self traveled and spread throughout the society in the 1970s. He helped me to stop living in the past and start building from today and using my experiences in a positive way to be a better person today and tomorrow. But then the problem comes, well, how do you be self-expressive? And it was at this point that American capitalism decided it was going to step in and help these new individuals to express themselves. And in the process, make a lot of money. The first thing they were going to do was to find a way of getting inside their heads, to discover what these new beings wanted in order to be themselves. This came not from Madison Avenue, from one of the most powerful scientific research institutes in America. Stanford Research Institute in California worked for corporations and government. It had done much of the early work on computers and was also working for the Department of Defense on what would become the Star Wars project. In 1978, a group of economists and psychologists at SRI decided to find a way to read, measure, and fulfill the desires these new, unpredictable consumers. 
The idea was to create a rigorous tool for measuring uh, a whole range of, of, of desires, wishes, values that uh, uh, prior to that time had been kind of overlooked. They say in business, you know, what gets measured gets done. We were basically telling manufacturers, if you're really going to satisfy not just the basic needs, but individuated wants, whims, and desires of, of more highly uh, developed uh, human beings, you're going to have to segment. You're going to have to individuate. To do this, SRI turned for help to those who had begun the liberation of the self. In particular, one of the leaders of the human potential movement a psychologist called Abraham Maslow. Through observing the work at places like Esalen, Maslow had invented a new system of psychological types. He called it the hierarchy of needs, and it described the different emotional stages that people went through as they liberated their feelings. At the top was self-actualization. This was the point at which individuals became completely self-directed and free of society. The team at SRI thought that Maslow's hierarchy might form the basis for a new way to categorize society, not by social class, but by different psychological desires and drives. To test this, they designed a huge questionnaire with hundreds of questions about how people saw themselves, their inner values. The questions were designed to see whether people fitted into Maslow's categories. We were trying to find out what people really felt like. So we asked these <clears throat> really penetrating questions. And we hired a, a company that administers surveys, you know, to do them. They said they've never seen anything like it. Usually you have to send out a postcard in six weeks and then another postcard. And then you got to call the people up, you know, to get the return rates up. We had an 86% return. And they only sent out one postcard. People loved filling out this questionnaire. We got several questionnaires back with a note attached saying, do you have any other questionnaires I could fill out? Because people, we were asking people to think about things that they had never thought about before, and they liked thinking about them. Like you know? what? Like what they felt inside? Yeah, like what they felt inside. What, what motivated them? What was their life about? What was important to them? It was sort of like, wow. The answers were then analyzed by computer. It revealed that there were underlying patterns in the way people felt about themselves, which fitted Maslow's categories. And at the top of the hierarchy were a large and growing group which cut across all social classes. The SRI team called them the inner directives. These were people who felt they were not defined by their place in society, but by the choices they made themselves. But what SRI discovered was that these people could be defined by the different patterns of behavior through which they chose to express themselves. Self-expression was not infinite. It fell into identifiable types. And the SRI team invented a new term for it, lifestyles. They had managed to categorize the new individualism. They called their system Values and Lifestyles, VALS for short. At the forefront of this change are three new VALS groups, groups we call inner directive. These are people for whom personal satisfaction is more important than status or money. They tend to be self-expressive, complex, and individualistic. Rob is an I am me. 
IMEs are searching for new values, breaking away from traditions and inventing their own standards. Rob even invented his own name, Rob Noxious. Jody is an experiential. This is a group seeking inner growth through direct experience. Experientials aren't in one place much. This is the try anything once crowd, and all that activity takes goods and services. Their hobbies are hands-on, and their possessions are simple, but not always simply priced. I'm a bookseller. I sell books. Mm. Uh, I'm a businessman. Um, it doesn't necessarily believe mean that I believe in capitalism. It just happens to be what I'm doing now. SRI created a simplified questionnaire with just 30 key questions. Anyone who answered them could be immediately fitted into a dozen or so of these new groups. It allowed businesses to identify which groups were buying their products, and from that, how the goods could be marketed, so they became powerful emblems of those groups' inner values and lifestyles, which was the beginning of lifestyle marketing. So it allowed people not just to look at people as demographics, group of age and income and whatever, but to really understand the underlying motivations. I mean, most of marketing was looking at people's actions and trying to figure out what to do. But what we were doing is we were trying to look more into people's underlying values so that we could predict what is their lifestyle, what kind of house do they live in, what kind of car do they drive. So the corporations were then able to sell things to them by understanding them by having labels, by knowing what these people look like, where they live, what their lifestyles are. If a new product expressed a particular group's values, it would be bought by them. This is what made the values and lifestyle system so powerful. Its ability to predict what new products self-actualizers would choose. And this power was about to be demonstrated dramatically. Vowels would show it could predict not just the products they would buy, but the politicians they were going to choose to elect. In 1980, Ronald Reagan ran for president. He and his advisors were convinced they could win on a program of a new individualism. It would be an attack on 50 years of government interference in people's lives. I wrote a speech about let the people make the basic decisions, get judges out of the way, get bureaucrats out of the way, get centralized government out of the way. I gave Reagan a choice of several titles for the speech, and the one he picked was Let the People Rule. Let the people regain rule, regain control over their own destiny away from a remote elite in Washington. I would like to think that the kind of leadership that I would exercise in Washington is not the kind of leadership that I would pretend that I can solve all the problems I've been discussing here, but that together, you and I can. I would like to be, take the lead in taking government off the backs of the American people and turning you loose to do what I know you can do. It was radical. Moderate Republicans thought it was suicide. Jimmy Carter called it ridiculous. The press was extremely negative. But the odd thing is that it polled very well in New Hampshire, which was the first primary state, the state that we had to win. What was odd? was that there seemed to be a strange mosaic of support for Reagan's policies. The traditional pollsters could see no coherent pattern across class, age, or gender. But those who had designed the values and lifestyle system believed that they knew why. 
They were testing their system in both America and Britain. And they were convinced that both Reagan's and Mrs. Thatcher's message about individual freedom would appeal to the group at the top of their hierarchy, the inner directives, because it fitted with the way they saw themselves. They were really concerned about being individuals, being individualistic. And so in the early stages, when we were looking at the messages that both Thatcher and then Reagan were, were putting across, we said they are using words that will really appeal to a lot of the younger people, and particularly to the people who are moving towards self-actualization. We call them the inner-directed people. A lot of our colleagues said, you know, you, that's absolutely ridiculous because inner directives are very socially aware, very socially concerned. Um, they'll never vote conservative or they'll never vote um, for the Republicans. But we said, if Thatcher and Reagan continue to appeal to them in this way, they really will. And I vision leadership in taking government off your backs and turning you loose to do what you can do so well. Thank you very much. The idea that the new self-actualizing individuals would choose a politician from the right, not the left, seemed extraordinary. But to test their prediction, the Values and Lifestyles team did a survey of voting intentions, and they correlated it with their new psychological categories. When we said in our surveys, who are you going to vote for, sure enough, it was the inner directives who said that they would vote for Thatcher and for Reagan. And they made the difference in those elections because of their, their voting for Thatcher and Reagan. And it really surprised our colleagues, even within my own organization. It really showed the power of this approach because it's very difficult to identify inner directives on the street. These people who voted for Thatcher and Reagan, these inner directives, came from any walk of life. It's really hardly correlated with social class at all. I mean, if you just go along and look at age, sex, social class, uh, you would never pick them up. But if you, if you really go along with a questionnaire that gets at their values, then you can identify them very easily. And that was new. And that was completely new, yeah. At the beginning of 1981, Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as president. But he took charge of a country that was facing economic disaster. The terrible inflation of the 1970s had destroyed much of America's traditional heavy industries. Millions were unemployed. But true to his campaign promises, Reagan told the country he would not step in to help, as all previous governments had since the war. These United States are confronted with an economic affliction of great proportions. We suffer from the longest and one of the worst sustained inflations in our national history. Idle industries have cast workers into unemployment, human misery, and personal indignity. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. But America's ailing economy was about to be rescued, not by government, but by the new groups that the market researchers had identified the self-actualizing individuals. They were about to become the motor for what would be called the new economy. You can be what you want to be. Regarding V8, what do you really want? <sighs> A tasty product that's good for me. What do you want that for? One technique is that we ask people the same question over and over and over again, and we say, what do you want? 
what do you really want? What do you want that for? And they start to talk about it, and they kind of get intimate with what's going on. What we're doing with that technique is unpeeling the onion. You want to think of a person kind of having layers and layers and layers of protection and thoughts and behaviors and beliefs. We want to get to that center core. In the wake of the invention of values and lifestyles, a vast industry of psychological market research grew up. And the old technique of the focus group, invented by the Freudian psychoanalysts in the 50s, was used in a new and powerful way. The original aim of the focus group had been to find ways to entice people to buy a limited range of mass-produced goods. But now focus groups were used in a different way, to explore the inner feelings of lifestyle groups, and out of that, invent whole new ranges of products, which would allow those groups to express what they felt was their individuality. And the generation who had once rebelled against the conformity imposed by consumers now embraced it because it helped them to be themselves. What capitalism managed to do that was brilliant was to actually create products that people like me would be interested in, that people like Jerry Rubin would be interested in. Capitalism developed a whole industry at developing products that evoked a larger sense of self. That, that, um, that seemed to agree with us that the self was infinite, that you could be anything you wanted to be, that, that took our philosophy and agreed with it, and then created products that supposedly helped you, aids that helped you be this limitless self. The product sells you a, a way of life, a way of being. The product sells you values. You, you dress this way, you live in a house like this, you, you have furniture like this, you use this computer. Yeah, do you have the regular jeans? Or? Oh, Gloria Vanderbilt does a lot in denim, in silks, and in cotton. You eat in these restaurants, their value is there. Hipness, coolness. This is not, I repeat, not a marketing scheme. So the notion that you could buy an identity replace the original movement notion that you were perfectly free to create an identity. And you were perfectly free to change the world and make the world anything you wanted it to be. Well, what I wear is uh, a statement. And this vast range of new desires fitted perfectly with changes in industrial production. Computers now allowed manufacturers to economically produce short runs of consumer goods. The old restrictions of mass production disappeared, as did the worry that had bedeviled corporate America ever since mass production had been invented, that they would produce too many goods. With the new self, consumer desire seemed to have no limit. In the United States, the concern of companies was always that supply would outstrip demand, that we were, we were producing too much, and that there was not a market for it. You don't hear that kind of talk anymore because you've gone from a conception of a, a market of limited needs, and if you fill them, they're filled, to a market of unlimited, ever-changing needs dominated by self-expressiveness that products and services can satisfy in an endless variety of ways and ways to change all the time. And consequently, economies have unlimited horizons. Out of this explosion of desire came what seemed a never-ending consumer boom that 
regenerated the American economy. The original idea had been that the liberation of the South would create new kinds of people, free of social constraint. That radical change had happened. But while the new beings felt liberated, they had become increasingly dependent for their identity on business. The corporations had realized that it was in their interest to encourage people to feel that they were unique individuals and then offer them ways to express that individuality. The world in which people felt they were rebelling against conformity was not a threat to business, but its greatest opportunity. It was, in a sense, the triumph of the self. It was the triumph of a certain self-indulgence, a view that everything in the world and all moral judgment was appropriately viewed through the lens of personal satisfaction. Indeed, the ultimate ending point of that logic is that there is no society. There is only a bunch of individual people making individual choices to promote their own individual well-being. Next week's episode tells the desires of a conformist society. The expressive self. I used to pay $163. All right, so there's that. Thanks so much for tuning in with me. Um, so that'll be the end of the third part, and for those of you who don't know, I I ended up missing the third part. I don't know how I did it. I don't know what happened, but I just didn't do it. So um, it's a bit on the late side. Uh, but yeah, it's it's as you can see, it's as good as the other ones. Um, but the other one that I believe that I have left is uh, part four, and then also part five. So. We'll be getting to that either later today or and or tomorrow. Um, but again, thank you so much for joining me. And like I said before I go, I want to talk a little bit about this discussion that I had with um a woman that I, I really admire and look up to. Um, a woman that I haven't always agreed with, but definitely still admire. Uh, her name is Tanya. Um, and we got into a bit of a discourse slash discussion today in regards to... Um, I don't know what it was. It was it was something. Uh one second. I'm gonna pull it up here.
So, someone had decided to um, whip out their camera. And seeing as how we're in, like, I guess the day and age where people feel comfortable with videotaping everybody and we're in a, a bit of a, I guess, um, visual anti era where people feel as though they have the right to put any and everything on camera uh, because they have a camera. And for this reason, there was one woman in particular who was caught with her child on a, I guess this video went viral, but um, there was a woman who was caught on on an American Airlines flight with her young child. And the child ended up having a panic attack because... I guess I guess the child had asthma and um the child ended up I don't know um in distress because of it because of the, the they were saying the mask that that the child was using wasn't um wasn't appropriate but I guess that American Airlines had some other ideas in mind and uh they decided to film the whole thing and uh post it to the internet um, all right, so my comment was, it's not uncommon behavior for an airline to do something like that, or my, my comment was, uh, it's not uncommon behavior for a lot of airlines, because a lot of airlines now have, uh, COVID restrictions and mask restrictions and policies and such in relationship to, um, I guess, uh, COVID-19. And so she says, uh, tagging me, and this is Facebook, uh, they drank the Kool-Aid. What a lot of businesses fail to see is that this is a road that will lead to no good. For a child to be forced to mask up is abuse and child abuse. Uh, for the woman's child to have an asthma attack because of, and I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. Uh, I think it's really, really incredible the way that, like, I, uh, I think it's ridiculous the fact that um, more uh, proper cautions weren't take taken and and there wasn't a line of communication that was established with the airline beforehand because uh, I feel like something like this could have been prevented and at the end of the day the person that suffers is the child which is what none of us want um and she goes on to say for that woman's child to have an asthma attack because of having to wear a mask sounds like a, a possible lawsuit to me um, and then I said, businesses are about profit. That's really, there's really no Kool-Aid involved added to, added the pandemic that's being, uh, experiences on a global scale. So yes, there are rules that are implemented that seem unfair. And yes, uh, lawsuits will arise. Some work, some won't. And... Then I went back and I said, 
It looks like the mother could have been better prepared for the situation if she knew that her child had asthma, asthmatic problems, and a line of communication could have been established with the airline well well before the actual flight. And unfortunate, and it's unfortunate that they both had to experience that. I don't think it's the airline's fault, though. And she decides to say, Miss Tanya... Tagging me, she says, yes, businesses are about profit, and I am still, and I still say they drank the Kool-Aid. Yes, it is happening on a global scale, and many of us from the 60s and the 70s were made aware of the New World Order, and that that's happening, quote-unquote. Yet, there are folks who are saying enough. There are those who are fighting back legally and protesting, and I, for one, am glad that I live in a time where we... We're more free and unafraid to have health officials flip-flop. To have health officials flip-flop is not a good thing, but there is a purpose for all of this. I kind of felt like as she's writing, like she's alluding to certain things. Um, But it is what it is. Uh, I felt like a lot of what she had to say was absolutely correct and as many conversations as I've had with my mother and my father in regards to the way that the 60s and 70s were played out and as much research as I've done I know exactly what she's talking about um I personally believe you know what I'm saying that the relationship between government and politics and human relations and business isn't as prominent as it was back in the day and if it was prominent it was prominent in a different way but it was still a a mode of propaganda or a a mode of mainstream propaganda that existed uh in order to brainwash the general public in in a certain direction um and with everything that happened and everything that went down in the 60s and 70s, that was also a really great time in which what we see now as a fine-oiled or as the fine-tuned machine in relationship to um, our politics and, and big business, it started in the 60s and the 70s, which is what she's talking about. Um, the 60s and 70s were an absolute testing ground the 60s and the 70s were an absolute time of experimentation and 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 and, and thought-provoking think tanks that the government and politics politicians used in order to create um apparatuses that would keep people in their place over a long period of time um the propaganda in which we see now got its footing and began its birth in the 60s and the 70s and the 50s and the 40s. Um, I want to say that the transition happened absolutely in, in around the 90s, around the time that I was born. And I'm almost fucking 30, man. Like, come on. Um, it's been a whole lifetime, damn near. Um, anyway, our back and forth, back and forth, we go on to say, um, 
she says that she's been studying the Confederate Papers. And um, she says, as I have been studying the interactions of the Founding Fathers, I see a different picture. There are the arguments in the, conf- in the Federalist Papers. There was the going back and forth as they looked at all forms of government they wrestled with. I mean, I, I, I really can't get away from the fact that our founding fathers were two-faced. These were people who owned slaves. So I don't think that anybody can really make a valid argument for the founding fathers when these were slave owners and masonaries. <sighs> but, I, I mean, I, that's just my, my personal thinking. Um, she goes on to say, and she writes this so beautifully, she says, as it is said, money should be on your mind, but not on your heart. In short, I agree that I agree that things will most likely get worse before they get better. I may not want to see that, but all, but for all intended purposes, the handwriting is on the wall. Thinking critically is a good thing. Who, what, when, where, why is a great place to 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 begin with when questioning what what will happen if. I too appreciate those who speak who are speaking out, and I am also grateful for the prayers prayer warriors who pray in secret. Continue to do what you talking to me. Uh, continue to do as you continue to do you as you grow in knowledge and wisdom, and that will and that will and. Hold on. Continue to do as you grow in knowledge and wisdom and that you are doing, be informed and prepared. Bless you for that, uh, quote unquote. And then we kind of just went our separate ways for the most part after this. And I told her just because I don't agree with her, like I don't think her opinion is invalid at any stage. I think what she's saying is absolutely beautiful. And I appreciate discourse like this. I feel like when, as we're living in a day and age where everything is hyper positivity and, oh, I love what you're doing. I love you, yada, yada. Like everybody wants to be like a hyper positive type of individual. And no one wants to have any type of criticism point, pointed out about them. Um when criticism is most certainly what we need as people more than anything nowadays. Um, You know, one thing that I'm pretty sure that everybody acknowledges that there's a lot of arguing online, there's a lot of back and forth online, but at the end of the day, that doesn't really do much for anybody as far as moving the needle in relationship to what you plan to do to keep yourself safe and your family safe. Um, that needs to be everyone's number one priority at the end of the day, not sitting online and arguing with other people. Um, and I think that, yeah, I mean, as long as you've got a plan at the end of the day, what the government is doing is not that important. (laughs) What the government is doing is only important if you don't have a plan. Um which is some of us. 
Um, but that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen and listen to me jabber and talk. Uh, I will be back with more pieces in the future. Um, until next time, uh, this is Madam Butterfly and I'm out.